Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Today, I'm joined by Brian Hartzer. Brian is from New York and has worked in the broader banking sector for the majority of his career in the USA, in the UK, and Australia. His career saw him as a senior leader in the ANZ Bank in several roles, including the credit card business, running the retail banking operations, and managing director of the Consumer Finance Division, as well as CEO of the Australian Division. He joined Royal Bank of Scotland in the UK, leading the Ulster Bank as CEO for the UK Retail and Wealth Management in 2009, and returned to Australia in 2012 to join Westpac which is Australia's first ever company and therefore oldest bank. He took on the role as chief executive for Westpac in 2015 and was in that role until 2019. For those listeners who are not familiar with the Australian banking and finance sector, the Australian government established a Royal Commission into banking in 2017 after a series of banking and financial scandals that saw Australian banks pay over a billion dollars in fines. During that Royal Commission, Westpac were seen to largely sail through the grilling of the Royal Commission relatively unscathed compared to some of their competitors. However, in 2019, Austrac, which is the Australian financial crime regulator, revealed 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering laws by Westpac, which ultimately led to Brian departing his role as CEO in November 2019. Brian has since taken up a range of roles in the arts and fintech industries, including chairman of Before Pay. He's just released his first book called The Leadership Star, A Practical Guide to Building Engagement. And in this very open and indeed transparent conversation, which I very much appreciate, Brian shares his experience of succeeding a leader who was hailed as being very successful in her tenure as CEO and how a very well-planned transition was important for that succession. He shares what it's like stepping up from being a member of the global leadership team of Westpac to then leading it as a CEO, what messages and symbols he enacted from day one as chief executive officer for Westpac. We discuss communicating at scale. How does a leader with over 33,000 staff continue to get their message across despite geographical and other barriers in place? Brian also shares his views on how leaders can and need to develop the ability of judgment particularly when there's ambiguity involved in whatever decision they're trying to make. And are we not covered in ambiguity at the moment? We also have a very frank and open conversation on the idea of reputational trauma. What happens for a leader, particularly a leader in a very public position, such as a listed bank, when they're asked to step down from their role and take the hit for a public event or a scandal? Now, in Brian's case, there's been a lot of articles written about this and whether he deserved that or not. I will leave that decision up to the listener. But in this conversation, I asked Brian about his experience of overcoming the personal impact it had for him. Like what happened the day after he left the bank and indeed the month after or the six months after. 
and he offers insight into what he says were three distinct phases of him overcoming that time. I think this is a really important and insightful conversation on a number of levels. Learning to lead a scale is difficult. So hearing from someone who arguably has done this really well in three different large institutions is always instructive. Brian, having taken the time to write a book about this, means we have the benefit of his reflections on what he did and why he did that. But for me, hearing his reflections on overcoming the exit and how he exited Westpac is really important. My experience is that every leader will face a humbling moment in their career at some stage, not necessarily at the level that Brian talked about or indeed he experienced. Nonetheless, the principles are the same. So have a listen to his experience, share with colleagues who might be going through a tough time and maybe take some notes for yourself because life's random moments will come and hit us at some stage. We don't know when, but we know they will. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. It's also an element of just accepting that you're going to get heat and that that's part of the job and understanding that the attacks are attacks on the role, not attacks on me as a person because the people attacking don't know me. It's weird and it's surreal and having cameras outside your house and all that kind of stuff is is horrific. You know, I guess I understood well enough that it, it was because of my job and it came with the territory. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome to the latest episode of The Leadership Diet, Brian. Good to see you. Likewise, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Looking forward to our conversation. I've read your book, The Leadership Star, The Practical Guide to Building Engagement. I've given it out to a few of my friends and clients, and so I'm looking forward to delving into that later. I woke up yesterday to see a headline in the paper said, The Second Life of Brian, and I smiled wondering, you see hanging on the cross looking at the bright side of life, like as per the movie. He's a very naughty boy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. And I'm thinking, I'd like to explore the first life of Brian as well as the second life of Brian. So we, sure. we, we might start there. You're obviously very well known in Australia for your ANZ and your Westpac career, but you, you started out in, in New York and Connecticut, I believe. I did. Well, I was, I was born in New York and grew up in Connecticut. And when I got out of college, I moved back to New York and went to work for a management consulting firm that specialized in banking called First Manhattan. But your degree has had nothing to do with economics or finance. And uh, from memory, you're a historian. Is that right? Yeah, my degree was in European history, although there's a bit more to the story there in that I actually did know I wanted to go into banking from a remarkably young age. I, around the age of 16, I got interested in banking and decided that was what I wanted to do. And one of the things that I like about the U.S. education system is if you are in university and you do reasonably well, employers don't necessarily expect you to have majored in the thing that you're going to do. In fact, as long as you can tell a credible story around why. And so in my case, I went to university thinking I would major in economics because I wanted to go work in banking. And I found that my economics classes were so theoretical and divorced from the reality of business that I just, I didn't like it. I was forced to try different things and I found I really enjoyed my history classes. And so I ended up choosing to do that. But I did take a a couple of corporate finance classes so that when I got to those interviews, I was able to say, yes, well, I chose to do this because it was an opportunity to do it while I was at university, but I always knew I wanted to go into finance and that's why I did my corporate finance classes. 
And so you joined a consulting firm, First Manhattan. You did a lot of work in the US and I think you did work internationally as well with that consulting group. What prompted you to move from the partnering into the organization to becoming part of the organization? Well, I was sent to Australia in 1994 to do a project for ANZ and ended up being there for three years doing a variety of projects. And at one point, my client offered me a job out the back of one of our assignments. He said, well, you've got this recommendation to set up this database marketing department. Why don't you join us and do that? And I said, well, that's very flattering, but actually I'm happy in consulting. And he said, okay, well, why don't we do a consulting assignment? And the assignment is you come in and set up this department. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I said, which was incredibly courageous of him, really. And I said, okay, well, that sounds appealing. So I became essentially a contract manager within ANZ for about a year and a half. I, I did the first job and then they offered me the same. We had the same conversation about becoming the head of consumer marketing. And so I ended up being the head of consumer marketing for the bank. And then ANZ went into a big cost cutting mode. And I knew that one of the first things that would get cut would be the marketing budget. So I just thought, you know, I've been here three years. That's enough. I'll go, I'll go home. What did happen was I was totally spoiled by living in Australia and I didn't want to go back to New York. And so my boss in New York offered me the opportunity to set up an office in San Francisco, which was the one place I had said I would live in America again after living in Australia. I went to San Francisco in, in 1997 and spent two years there. And then I married my then Australian girlfriend and we were back in Australia for a wedding reception. And my, my old client was very persistent and he offered me the job running ANZ's credit card business. And at that point I said, yes. The rest is history from a, from a, from a banking career. Fantastic. From a transition perspective, you, you've, you've had many transitions, both from say cross country, cross cultural, from consulting into companies to then leading in the organizations. When you think about those transitions, what made you successful in the transitions? Like how did you move into those new roles, new countries, and what did you do to make them work? I was reflecting on this, and I think that probably one of the most important things was a level of humility about recognizing what I didn't know. So I read a lot. I remember, as an example, I remember being on an airplane down to Australia quite early on. I don't know if it was my first flight, but it was very early. And I remember thinking to myself that while Australia is an English speaking place, it's a different country. And I really don't understand the mindset. And so I remember finding a book called Culture Shock Australia, which was written by an Australian about the Australian mindset. And I found that incredibly helpful because so many Americans, for example, in Australia tend to fail in business here is my observation because they think it looks like America and the people speak English and kind of look like us. So they must be the same. And so they don't take the time to really understand that the context is different and people's mindsets are different. So number one was I knew that there were a lot of things I didn't know. Um, I also had an insecurity business wise because I hadn't gotten an MBA. So I didn't consider myself a trained manager. And so because of that insecurity, I did tons of reading and I was endlessly fascinated with other businesses and other CEOs and trying to learn from great companies and think about ideas that, that I could apply. And I suppose another thing that's just inherent in me is curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I've always been a really curious person. I've just always wanted to know ever since I was a kid, how things worked and to get into the detail of how things work. And I think that meant that when I went into new situations, I was wired to try to understand. And that probably helped the, the combination of those factors meant that I wasn't the American that people expected me to be. Particularly given you, as you said, you came from New York, which would have a, a very brash type of reputation. 
And, and that was always an issue for me. I mean, to this day, when I walk into a room or certainly I don't wear a suit very much anymore, but when I would walk into a room wearing a, a suit, people would make all kinds of assumptions about me. And if they'd read about me, they'd say, well, okay, Ivy League, New York ex-consultant. Oh gosh, you know, we know what's coming here. And I was always very conscious of that. And I worked pretty hard to not be that in terms of going over the top on demonstrating curiosity and respect for people and not being the smart guy coming down from the mountain with the tablets. The idea of curiosity and reading a lot, in your experience, accessing insights, is reading one of the prime focuses for you to access that information? Yeah, I'd say so. I've always been a big reader. And when I was a kid, back when we actually went to libraries, I, I would go to the library and when I, whatever I was interested in, I'd check out 12 books on the topic and go home and read them all. And I just, I've always had that wanting to understand thing and I'd get excited about a topic and get really into it. I don't remember most things I read, <laughs> to be honest, which is part of why I wrote the book the way I did was to try to make it that if you read it once, you could remember it because I made it, tried to make it really simple. But I try to take in information from lots of places. Uh, another thing that I would add to that, though, it might sound odd, but I love just walking around the streets and walking in a shopping mall and walking and just looking at what's going on. And, and I used to allow myself the notion that if I went for a walk around town in the middle of the afternoon, I was working because I would just be looking at people and how are they dressed and what are they doing and where are they going and what, what's that new shop and what are people buying? And I learned to allow myself to just let my curiosity wander a bit. It's the subtlety of reading. It's not so much that I would read a book and go, okay, here is this new framework and I must apply it religiously. It was all about adding to the stew that was my brain and trusting that my subconscious would make connections eventually. I'm really interested when you say that. I've, I've written a series of books called Foreigner in Charge, which is exactly as you talk about the culture shock. They're written for folks who come from one country into another country. And how do you quickly learn to lead as the foreigner in charge of that particular entity? I should have read that. That would have been helpful. <laughs> and one of my recommendations always is, you know, as part of your integration, you know, most folks will do some sort of cross-cultural learning, which is always useful, but it's limited to your first few days typically. And one of our recommendations is always what we used to come in was cultural investigation walks. So it's exactly, exactly what you've just said. We'd mm -hmm. recommend people go for a walk around the city, but look for specific things that you don't know or haven't seen before. So when you come back into the office on Monday, you can ask a question about, so why does everyone buy that particular cup of tea or whatever it is? Right. And the amount of feedback over the years from leaders who've said, I learned more in those two or three Saturdays of walking to look for specific things than anything I've ever, I've ever done. So it means I'm asking questions that are informed, but also locally interesting to, to the folks I'm working with, because I'm asking questions about their culture and specific yeah. questions as opposed to general questions. Yeah. I remember one of the things that struck me early on when I went into stores in Australia was when you leave the store and you'd say, um, you'd say goodbye to the person who's helping you. They'd say, see you later. Right. I remember thinking, what an odd thing to say to a customer. I came to think that it was actually quite a, a good window into the Australian mindset is that you might be buying in my shop, but you're no better than me. And, and we are equals and we are mates. You know, so I'm going to engage you in that way. Whereas in an American shop or a British shop, you'd have a very different, much more deferential kind of relationship. Absolutely right. 
Yes, actually, you're right. It's a classic egalitarian side of Australian culture that's underestimated when you first arrive and you look back to you in the face a few weeks later. Yes. <laughs> so one of my former clients said to me, you know, the first six weeks in Australia are an absolute holiday and then week seven you wake up. <laughs> you mentioned the UK. You've, you've obviously had um, a strong career in banking in Australia. You, you were consulting in the US. You also worked in the UK. From a leadership perspective, what, what adaptions did you have to make or what learnings did you have moving from, say, Australia to the UK or indeed from America to Australia? Well, I actually found it easier to go from Australia to the UK than I did from the US to Australia. And I think the fact that I'd spent so much time in Australia meant that a lot of things were very familiar to me when I got to the UK. I do think there are there are some differences, though. I think in Britain, this is a funny thing to notice first, but people work really hard in Britain or they work long hours. And particularly, I noticed people spend a lot of time commuting. Their lives are quite dominated by their work. And they're, they're quite attached to their, their jobs and their careers. In Australia, I think that people are so much more comfortable in their lifestyle that work is not quite optional, but, but almost optional. And so as a leader, you have to work a bit harder to engage people in Australia, whereas in Britain, there is more a resigned deference to authority. And I think, ironically, most Australians wouldn't believe this, but Australians, as a, if I can generalize, are a lot more conflict averse. And so it can be actually harder to know what people really think about something, which is obviously essential when you're trying to make change happen. But uh, and I suppose from a business point of view, I'd, I'd observe one other thing, which is that the size of the market in the UK compared to Australia means that the mechanics of business are quite different because in, in two important respects. One is that you tend to have a lot more revenue in the UK. So you tend not to be quite as worried about your cost structure. Whereas because Australia is a smaller market, people tend to manage their costs much more closely and in many ways become more efficient as a result. But then you have this other issue, which is that it's harder to find people to work for you in Australia because the, the talent pool is smaller. So you tend to actually build your strategy based on the people you have Whereas in the UK and the US, you build your strategy and then you go get the people. And being one of the oldest banking sectors in the world, it, it, it makes perfect sense as to why the, the, the talent pool would be gravitating towards the UK as one of the options. Yeah. So you move from one of the oldest banking sectors in the world, being the UK, to the first bank in Australia, and then ultimately took on the CEO role of, of Westpac. Let's talk about that. And I'm really interested in you know, your first few days of being promoted into the CEO role. You were promoted internally, so that's always different to being come from an external position. What was it like to transition into the role, particularly taking over the leadership of your former peers, who were your peers a week earlier? Yeah, the peer thing wasn't too hard because the transition at Westpac was very well handled, I think, by the board. Everybody knew what the process was. There were two internal candidates Everyone knew who they were, and it was all done in a very respectful way. Because I was an internal, I had had time to get to know everybody, and they, I think, mostly knew and respected me. And actually, one thing that helped me a lot was that the strategy that we had developed in my previous role within Westpac essentially became the Westpac strategy. So everybody kind of, my sense is people kind of knew where we were going and it, and it felt sensible. The bigger challenge was more just stepping up into the CEO role. My predecessor is an enormously well-respected person with a big personality bordering on celebrity. 
I think one of the headlines was big heels to fill was was what what people charge me with. And I'm I'm much less of a celebrity and much less of a big personality and certainly a lot less good looking. And so I guess I had a bit of a insecurity about that. For me, it was more about how do I step into this role that's been dominated for a very long time by this very big, rightly respected person. And of course, you, you, given you were promoted internally, you, you'd worked with Gail for a while. So you, you guys knew each other really well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're friends. We're, we're friends. I have immense respect for Gail. Um, she's a wonderful person and she was incredibly supportive of me. The transition, as a consequence of that, Gail handled the transition incredibly well and, and was very, very supportive to me in that. So th- the dilemma was I have to, to use the cliche, stamp my authority on the thing so that people know, okay, I'm in charge. But I didn't want to ever be disrespectful of the past, be it Gail or the other people who've come before. And so I was walking that line of how do you respect the past while asserting your authority? The financial media in particular, given that you're in the banking sector, would be looking for signs of, you know, what's his 100 day plan and, and, and all those typical type of areas. And as you just said, you want to be respectful of the past, particularly given you were part of creating the past. You were on that leadership team that helped to, to signal that. You signaled quite early on that technology was going to be a key focus for you. And, and I heard you say elsewhere, you promoted the role of CIO to the leadership team pretty early in your tenure, maybe even your first, first day. week. First day. Day one. Well, was, yeah. that, was that kind of signal designed to signal whilst we're respecting where we've come from, we're also signaling a, a clear direction where we're heading towards? Yes. So the way that I tried to resolve that dilemma was I tried to build a narrative around, we've been a very lucky company because... The leaders we've had have been right for the times. And I would actually articulate that. What were the periods we went through and why were we so fortunate to have Bob Joss and David Morgan and Gail Kelly for the, the main themes we we're dealing with? And then I would say, now we're, in a, we're going through another massive period of change, probably the biggest period of change we've seen in 30 years. And that's going to be all about technology, changing customer behavior, new competitors, a new regulatory environment. And so we're going to have to make a lot of change, not because what we were doing before is wrong, but because the circumstances have changed. And, and so that was the narrative I tried to, tried to tell. And then I tried, the second part of it was to try to use symbolic acts, because I believe people tell stories to the, each other about in trying to describe things. And so I was very conscious to be deliberate about the symbolic acts that would signal how things were changing in a concrete way. And so the elevation of Dave Curran as CIO to my executive table was a very important signal because technology had always been a level down mm-hmm. in the organization. And likewise, I think on day one, we launched Yammer, an internal communications mechanism, which, which actually worked incredibly well and really improved communication within the company um, and was, was a real dynamic changer in the company. And I think Westpac would have been one of the first major organizations in Australia to, to go down that route in terms of, of comm platforms and really moving to not just email, video conference, but we're actually having a dynamic live communication platform. Yeah, well, I thought it was amazing because um, if you think about it, historically, just to use an example, we had, I don't know, 1,200 branches, let's say. And so branch managers around the country are doing largely the same kind of job. But the branch manager in a suburb of Perth doesn't know a branch manager in the suburb of Brisbane. They may have never met. But what Yammer did was allow those people to collaborate because the 
the lady in Perth could could post a question on Yammer in a targeted group of branch managers saying, does anybody have any good ideas for how to do X? And lo and behold, a guy in the suburbs of Brisbane just did that. And he said, oh, yes, try, you know, try this. And so all of a sudden you have this lateral communication going on and people could message me directly and I could respond directly and I would. And then, of course, that would shock people that all of a sudden everything wasn't being filtered. It was just an incredibly powerful way to excite the culture. Just out of interest as, as the CEO, and you'd been in the organization, so you, you understood the dynamics of communication internally. Opening the door to immediate feedback, like a tool like Yammer, did that allow you to get parts of the organization that you had been previously not exposed to, i.e. the kind of conversations, the kind of dynamics, the kind of frustrations that might be happening by being able to see Yammer live? Did that give you exposure to that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And one interesting thing about that is some people thought that I'd be inundated with messages and it would be unmanageable. And actually, I didn't find that. I found people were very respectful and always took their time to raise their issue in a, in a respectful way or to put something on my radar in a, in a respectful way. I mean, once in a while, a couple times a year, somebody might have a go at somebody in the organization that they didn't like and would use it in an inappropriate way. But it was unbelievably rare. So I, I found it overwhelmingly positive and absolutely did mean that I had insights that I could use when I was asking people around the organization about things that I absolutely was picking up from Yammer. Another CEO who is from the financial sector who is, embraces technology in, in their new role in a big way told me recently that they, in their case, they use Slack. But one of the reasons that they use it, and he said, is when I am doing town hall meetings or calls, whatever, I'm able to use comments that I've seen in conversation threads or questions that I'm seeing. It really helps me stay up to date with what's really truly going on. Also, it helps my team understand I know what's truly going on because I am up to date with the threads. So it sounds like that, that was your experience in the early days of Yammer too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful development for management. One of your reputations while you were at Westpac is your ability to communicate and scale your communications way beyond you know, the physical room that you're in. And I know reading your book and other conversations I've heard you speak on, this was a, a key strategy for you. Can you tell us about what well, A, why it became a key strategy and what did you do to enable that? Well, I think it's obvious that when you're in a very large organization, you're, you find the need to look for points of leverage that how do, you, how do you make an impact on a huge company? Well, you have to find the right points to intervene. And then you need to intervene in ways that have a ripple effect through the organization. So I had a real interest in communications generally. Maybe it might be historically, my father was in television and I used to watch how he used corporate communications films to build culture um, in his clients. And maybe that planted a seed for me that using video effectively was a way to, to get to people and, and humanize yourself. So we used to do a lot of that. I was really taken by a book I read called Made to Stick, which I think is just one of the best books on communication. I, I recommend any, any leader read it. It just parses why is it that some communications work and others don't. And it gives a framework for that that I found really helpful so that when we were trying to make something go through the company, we would be very structured about saying, let's use that framework. And I would, I would say to my teams, what are the made to stick points here that we, want to, that we want to get out there? And then I would experiment with different ways to communicate people. I think one of the mistakes that people make is they rely on a single channel 
So they do a weekly town hall meeting or all hands meeting, or they send out a monthly email or a weekly email, or they have a town hall meeting once a quarter and bring everybody in. Those things are fine, but I think you have to have a sense of constantly experimenting with different ways to get to people because you need to interrupt them if you want them to to take something in. And if people just start to think, oh, yes, this is that same thing again, they, they don't necessarily pay attention to it. So I was always looking for new things we could do. For example, we started video, I had video conferencing in my office. So I started dropping into people's Monday morning video huddles. Without them knowing or, or did they? Uh, we would plan it, but yeah. sometimes, sometimes it would be a surprise to the team. The manager might know and they might, might, might or might not tell their people. And so I would just suddenly I'm there and they're talking to me in my office and I would show them my cup of coffee and the computer where I worked. And, and then we would talk about what was going on in their branch. And, you know, it might be 15, 20 minutes, but that was something unusual. And so people would talk about that. And so I would, I would look for the value of novelty in communications is, is underappreciated. I would imagine if you're in a regional office in Blacktown or Subiaco, within about 20 minutes, everyone in the, around those offices would know that the Brian, the CEO has been in our meeting today. Yeah, probably. And I, and I counted on that and that, but that's the point is that just the way you described it, I'm sure is what they would say, but notice they didn't necessarily say what I said. It was the fact that I did it, but people would read into that, that I'm interested because I was interested and, and so therefore we're important. And that's a big part of engagement is people need to feel important. We'll come to the leadership star in a, in a few minutes. I, I want to spend some time with that, but you've just alluded to a really important point. Um, this whole idea of leading a scale is, is a, obviously a really important phrase and a learning for leaders to understand how do I lead beyond the 150 people in my building? And I think what you're alluding to is engaging with a whole range of different communication styles and platforms and techniques is pivotal for that. And I think what you just said, which I really like, is you've got to disrupt what they expect from you. And therefore, I remember having a conversation many years ago, one of your former colleagues, Bob Joss, he was talking about, you know, people think the role of CEO is really exciting. He said, actually, every single day I have the same conversation with different groups of people. He's just trying to figure out how to have the conversation, which sounds like that's a similar philosophy that you've adopted. Yes. And I would add to that, that you have to engage at multiple levels. HR teams and communications teams are very wedded to the idea of cascading messages because they want consistency. And there's a role for that. But you you have to be careful that you don't end up being a slave to that, that you've got to get out of your office and you've got to be engaging with people at multiple levels in the organization because their concerns are going to be different and the things that influence them are going to be different. Can I jump to crisis type moments or the tough moments you experienced in the, your CEO role at Westpac? I, I was reminded reading an article today, Marvin Bauer, you know, the, the, not the founder of McKinsey's, but certainly one of the key backbones of McKinsey said, there is no preparation for the role of CEO. You just learn as soon as you start in the role. And that's a kind of a scary process when you think about it. So even though you have different roles over the course of your career, you're, you're working into the role of CEO. It's only when you truly get into it, that you start understanding what it's truly like. And in those crisis moments, I suspect is when you start learning it. 
That's true. I, I just parent that I don't totally buy that, actually. Uh, I mean, I know why you'd say that. And there certainly are things that you don't fully appreciate or at least viscerally appreciate until you're actually in the role. And, and certainly crisis is a good example of that, where the buck stops with you and you're going to have to make a decision. That, that is certainly a confronting moment when there's essentially no one to appeal to. And what happens then? <laughs> well, I think you, for me, it was trying to go back to principles and your integrity and asking yourself, what's the right thing to do here? And then being sort of systematic about thinking about the different stakeholder groups and what's the impact of different decisions on those groups. And so the one of the things that I think people in an organization often don't appreciate. I remember in, in lots of conversations where people would come to me and say, we need to do X. And I would say, well, I can see why you think that's the right thing to do, but I've got to think about this and this and this and the second and third order consequences of that. And I think that's where the, the role of the CEO comes in is that you have to be thinking not about just this situation or that you have to be thinking about the unintended consequences of that. And so in crisis, that really comes to the fore because sometimes you just have to make the best decision you can with imperfect information at the time. And there are times when you just need quick decisions and you need certainty and you need to do your, take your best shot. And when that happens, for me, one of the topics that I spent time working on was learning about judgment. It's a slight digression, but it's very relevant to the crisis point. It's that I think judgment is underappreciated in leadership development. Because so much leadership development, it's almost like you read these articles and people are trying to effectively give you a spreadsheet for how you could make decisions. And yet, actually, the really important ones, you're exercising judgment and there isn't a spreadsheet. And yet we don't teach people how to cultivate judgment. So for me, the, the crux of what that comes down to is one, being really clear on what you're about and what your principles are. And what are the important things to you in terms of how you make decisions? And then the second is getting lots of different perspectives on an issue where possible, not deciding until you, if it's important, ideally you want to not decide until you've seen all aspects of an issue. There's a, people get very macho about, I need to be quick in my decision-making in a real crisis. Sometimes you just have to make a decision fast because you're better off making a decision than not. But even then as quickly as you can, getting a variety of perspectives on an issue how did you learn that? Because I think what you're describing, you know, from a mindset perspective, it's a higher order of mind thinking in the sense of I need to get other points of view, other perspectives, other data, keep optionality alive as long as I possibly can, and maybe go against my own natural desire to be decisive or just to do something. I completely agree with you in the sense that most leaders who I, who I see to be successful during times of crisis exercise great judgment. At least in hindsight, it looks like great judgment. At the time, we don't know. And most of them say they have learned or practiced that. So uh, how do you do that? I guess where I started on it was in investing, there's this concept of the mosaic theory of investing, which is that you don't really know the right answer, but you, you put together a mosaic of little different lenses on a, on a topic. And I found that setting aside crisis for the moment, if I'm not sure about what to do about something, if I get enough different perspectives on an issue, I find that I eventually start to have, it feels, I often find myself doing this with my hands, kind of a ball, that it's a 360 degree view of the issue. And eventually it will, my find it just snaps into, into focus. It's suddenly, oh, okay, that is the way I need to think about this issue. And given that, here's the right answer. So often it's a question of 
what is what is really the question I have to answer here? What is you might think the decision is, do I do A or B? But in order to answer that, you need to know what question am I really asking? What's the better question here? Yeah. And trying to lift up a perspective to a high, slightly higher level and then look at that issue in its context, in its three dimensionality. And then often that takes you to a place of, of going, oh, actually, I think this is a question about pricing. Actually, this is a question about our, the company's reputation. Okay, therefore, this is the right answer. For, you see what I mean? So, so I think it's, it's that asking yourself, what is the right question? And getting different perspectives on that. Often the answer then becomes clear once you know what the question really is. That ties back to one of your early comments about humility. And that is, if Mm -hmm. a leader has a degree of humility, therefore curiosity, they are more likely to want to seek out other people's perspectives. If they are coming from a place of arrogance, they're they're likely to shut down other people's perspectives, which can potentially lead to poor judgment. Yeah. I mean, I think you want a, I read this somewhere, I don't know where, but it made sense to me that you want a combination of self-confidence and humility. So I am... Like lots of people, I have my insecurities, but I also have a a reasonably deep level of confidence based on what I've done in my life and the things I've been through and gotten through that I think, well, I can probably with enough attention figure anything out with the right help. And I've continually managed to take on and do more than I ever thought I could. So I think I'll probably be okay. But now in this context, I really have no idea what I'm doing but I have a confidence that I can figure it out or, or I can get help to get me there. That's sort of the way my brain works, I guess. But I've, I've read things to suggest that that's a pretty good balance. I've accepted and kind of cultivated that. Can I move the conversation to what led to you leaving Westpac and the, the, the track and the Royal Commission? I'm, I'm interested in how does a leader prepare for a Royal Commission in your case, but any, anything of that ilk? When there is a high degree of publicity, there's a lot at risk and there's a fair degree of, let's use the word aggression in the process of involving you in the, in the conversation. And maybe the banking sector, maybe the NDIS sector, maybe a whole range of different sectors. It's still the same process. How does a leader enter that conversation knowing that they are going to be entering you know, the den, if you will? Yeah. Well, the longer term story was I had been closely involved with all the players as that Royal Commission process played out. So I understood where it was coming from and why it was happening. And I could see reasonably clearly where it was going. So I guess I tried to be fairly clear eyed about that. And that then meant that we were pretty clear on what the goal was going in to the Royal Commission for the company. And then, so that then informed my preparation the Royal Commission itself was one of the hardest things I've done, probably the hardest thing I've done since university in terms of the preparation. I mean, I spent probably an average of four or five hours a day, seven days a week for six weeks preparing for that. It's been intense. It was very intense. And that included having QCs lobbing grenades at you in practice sessions. It included, I once piled up my briefing notes and it was about five feet of briefing notes in binders. Literally, it was like up to my shoulders when I piled it up. But it meant that I learned a lot about the company in depth. And I had to, in many cases, it was both learning what had happened and being able to explain it. But it was also forcing, it was very good in the sense that it forced me and my team to confront some of the underlying questions 
about how do we think about this issue and do we think this is okay? And if we do, why is it okay? And if not, well, what should happen? It was a very constructive process in terms of understanding the company better and and what were the things that we agreed had gone wrong that we needed to do something about. A lot of the things were anecdotes that were sensationalized that really they were just screw ups in some cases, you know, that just things happen. But there were some other things where we discovered and learned from the story that made a really profound impact. And and the as an example of that, I had always taken comfort in the fact that the percentage of customers who actually complained was incredibly, it was vanishingly low. It was less than a half of 1% of customers complained in a given year. And so I used to think, well, okay, things are going wrong, but overwhelmingly we were actually getting it right. What I missed and what we all missed was that in that half of 1% was a very small number of very terrible cases. And we didn't have visibility on those. When we did get visibility of that tiny percentage, we went, oh my gosh, we got to fix this. And we would always fix it. But we hadn't engineered the processes of the company to escalate the truly horrible situations that were in that tiny percent. And that was a failing. And and we changed that and we fixed it. And there are now processes in place to make sure that the really egregious things do get escalated. So that was a real, that was real positive. I think you're asking more about the, the personal experience of going through it. And I guess the answer is, Intense preparation, going back to what we were talking about before, understanding what it was really all about. You know, my job was not to go in there and convince everyone that we were great because no, you know, that was not going to happen. My job was to get in there and get out with my re- reputation and the company's reputation intact. And so you prepare in a particular way for that. And I guess there was also an element of just setting your jaw, to use the phrase, and accepting that you're going to get heat and that that's part of the job and understanding that the attacks are attacks on the role, not attacks on me as a person because the people attacking don't know me. And, and it's weird and it's surreal and having cameras outside your house and all that kind of stuff is, is horrific. You know, I guess I understood well enough that it it was because of my job and it came with the territory. And, and that was just part of what I was being paid to do. You obviously had been in the RBS in England before you came to Australia. So you had seen a bank, you know, and, and the CEO of that bank in, in very public media conversations. So you understood that as part of taking on the role. I did. I knew the first day I was offered the role of CEO. I remember my first, in, my initial reaction was of relief that I was going to get a chance to do it after all these years. But my immediate second reaction was resignation of a feeling that, okay, this, you know, something's coming and it's going to be intense and it's not going to be fun. So I I always knew. And that was because, as you say, I'd been at RBS. I'd seen the way that the press had attacked Stephen Hester, who I have just the most immense respect for. And so I, I understood that that came with the territory. And likewise, I'd seen Gail had gone through a tough time. And so, you know, I knew that 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 came with the territory. So can, can I spend a few minutes just talking about day one plus? So your final day in Westpac, as I understand it, you spent some time in the foyer of your uh, building in, in Sydney saying goodbye to various folks. I did. I know that had a huge impact on the organization. Like the amount of comments on LinkedIn and a whole range of other platforms from Westpac folks talk so well and so highly about that. What was your intention of doing that? Well, Westpac was deeply personal for me. I had an immense affection, still do, for the people that worked there, for the company, for what it stood for, 
for what we were trying to do. And I wanted people there to be proud of the company. You know, the press was trying to make us out as villains and as somehow uncaring about the consequences of the failure that we'd, we'd had on, on this Austrack thing. And I really wanted people to be proud of the company. And I didn't want to slink off in the dark as like some sort of criminal because I wasn't, you know, I accepted that I had to wear the consequences of the company's failure. That was part of my job, but people were devastated because it's a company of incredibly high integrity and people with high integrity and people who were desperately trying to do the right thing and had worked really hard and were on a wonderful path. And so I wanted to reinforce that. And I, I wanted to people, I didn't want people to think, oh gosh, we've been misled. Somehow the company is a terrible company and these people are actually, you know, bad people. So I just wanted to, I don't know, make it okay for people somehow. And certainly the impact you had on your colleagues within Westpac was quite profound and, and uh, indeed it's still talked about in terms of, of the way you handled yourself and, and left on those days. In, a, in previous episodes of this podcast, people like Warwick Fairfax and people like Richard Neal have talked about, in, in their words, reputational trauma, how they managed to overcome what could be seen as a very public, humiliating or humbling time of their lives. And I'm interested yeah. in every leader at senior levels will go through periods of a life where things are not going well for them. Now, in most cases, it, ha it happens inside an office and most people don't know. Sometimes, you know, as your case or their cases can be more public. How did you manage to overcome that? And what resources did you lean into or people you lean into to help you overcome that? So that when I pick up the paper yesterday, it says the second life of Brian, clearly you, ha you have overcome that and you're recreating something very different. What happens in the intervening period? First, can I just say that I am very excited about things I'm doing now, but obviously you can't go through an experience like that and not have it leave some scars. So I wouldn't want to pretend that, you know, it, it didn't hurt because it did. What I would say is, for me, it probably went through three phases, and I suspect that that's fairly common. One of the advantages I had going into it was I had been through a very painful divorce about 10 years earlier. And so I'd gone through a period of trauma and rebuilding in my personal life. And when this all happened, I remember thinking, I bet this is going to be similar. And it, and it kind of was, actually. So I think there's a bit of a common pattern. So in my mind, there were three phases. The first phase was essentially dealing with trauma. To go through something like that, particularly when it's as public as what I dealt with, cameras out the front of my house, you know, it's very traumatic. That has a huge physical and emotional toll on you. And you have to deal with trauma just like you would deal with any emotional trauma in your life, the loss of a loved one or a devastating injury or whatever it might be. I think the second phase I would probably call a, I don't know, rationalization or reconciliation phase, which is about coming to grips with, okay, what actually happened? And what do I, most importantly, what do I learn from this? How much of this is about me and that things that I need to learn and own? And how much of this is, look, life has randomness in it and you can't overthink it. And so for me, there's a bit of both of that, but I think it, you need to, you need to get out of the trauma phase before you can really start to deal with that because you need objectivity, both yourself and from the people that you seek insight from. But I think it is important to figure out how do I put this thing in a box and, and what do I what do I take away from this and how do I make this a positive experience in some way? 
And then the third phase, I suppose, would be the the rebuilding phase. And that's where, for me, it was about exploring things that were genuinely interesting to me, dropping things that weren't, making a positive out of the ability to set my own agenda. Um, because when you're CEO of a company, you don't control a lot of your agenda. You, there's a lot of things you just have to do. And now it says the real positive in being able to choose what you do, trying things and learning by trying things about what it is you really want to do next. And so at a, at a high level, that's, I can talk in more detail if you want, but th- that's broadly how I, how I've approached it. I think it's an extraordinary, insightful and helpful summary. You don't get to lead at senior levels without hitting roadblocks. And sometimes the randomness of those roadblocks feels very personal. But as you said, it may not be. Nonetheless, yeah. at the time, it's very personal and you have to own the parts that you contributed to those and then the parts that are just completely random because you happen to be in the role. And I know from the listeners of this podcast that the reason people listen to this podcast is to get the insights from folks who have been through that. So uh, thank, thank you for sharing that. Well, if, if it's important, I, I can give you a couple more Please. detailed things if you like. So on the trauma side, I think just acknowledging that it is traumatic and that it takes a couple of months to just for your body and your brain to adjust to that. And it's a roller coaster. You have, you go through highs, you go through lows, all the cliches are true. You find out who your friends are. You need to spend time with your friends and family. You need to get a change of scenery. I think sleep is probably the single most important thing. Even you know, if you have to find ways to force yourself to sleep, then that's what you do because you just, you've got to, you got to let your body unwind so that it doesn't get into a really bad mental rut which is very easy to do. And I think that that bit about the rationalization, the important point for me is that your brain is wired to try to reconcile it when you're going through that traumatic period, but you can't because you're not objective. So you just have to kind of go, look, I'm going to go through this horrible period. I'm going to be emotional. I'm going to have really bad days and I'm going to have some good days. But just knowing that over time, the lows get less low and they happen less frequently. And they're further apart. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at first you kind of, you can't stop thinking about it and then it's every day you have a really low moment and then it's every couple of days and then it's once a week and then it's once a month. And then, you know, and it's just, that is just what happens. Having been through two big traumatic things in my life, that, that is just what happens. So you just have to get through that period. And then, and then eventually you can go, okay, one day you start feeling a bit calmer about it all. And then you say, all right, now's the time for me to have conversations with people about what, what did I learn? What should I learn from this? You know, tell me the truth. What was my contribution to this? What could I have done differently? You know, what is it about the way I approach things that that caused this to happen? And to be introspective about that and, and own whatever that is. But also not to go, everything is my fault. You know, in my case, a big part of it was a regulator wanting to make a point to everybody else and a bunch of politicians who... Encourage that. That's just part of what happens. But I think it is important to find that balance between not taking all the blame on yourself where it isn't deserved, but equally having the humility to accept that you need to learn from it and come and get stronger. How long was that period for you? Do you think that's the second period, the rationalization period? Probably six months. And as part of that, I mean, some of this is overlapping because I think the other thing was I was exploring things that I might do next at that same time. 
it's not a linear piece of it finishes on a Friday and the next phase starts Monday, right? It's, it's, a, it's a going back and forth. Yeah. So, I mean, that can kind of overlap, but I, but I think that it is important that you get to a point of bit of an overword used word, but closure in your mind about, okay, I now understand what this experience was. And a bit like what we talked about before about looking for the mosaic, it's trying to get as many perspectives uh, on, on the situation as you can until you get to a point where you're like, okay, I now understand what, what I need to take away from this. And you need to get that clear because that's going to provide input into what you do next. Where you're rewriting the narrative of the future. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Speaking of which, you wrote a book, which is one of the reasons why you and I are chatting today. Yes. Uh, as well as moving to a whole lot of new roles um, that you've, you've taken on. The idea of writing a book, I've heard you say, you said it already today, I, I wasn't an MBA, so they had to go and learn. When I'm reading this book, and indeed folks I've given this book to have commented on, you really seem to have learned from watching, observing, experimenting, practicing, noticing, and then implementing all oh, that seems to work again and again and again. Is, it, is that a fair reflection of, of? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think people in a lot of the leadership books I read written by academics all sound really interesting, but by the time I finished the book, I've generally forgotten it. And then you go in on a Monday morning to the chaos and you think, well, <laughs> you know, that's not really that helpful. So to me, it was more about trying to say objectively, who are the people that were achieving incredible results and what on earth are they doing that's different than other people? So you've, you've ended up with a 5C acronym, care, context, clarity, clear the way and celebrate. And indeed, there's nothing like having a memorable acronym to help people to understand and remember. Yeah. The word care sounds kind of obvious, but you, you've, you've, you've dug down into demonstrating your care and showing how you care because people will remember how they feel as opposed to what you say. Yeah. The key aspect for me about care is that care is an action verb because I have this little stunt that I do in presentations of this stuff where I'd say, put your hand up if you care about your people. And of course, everybody puts their hand up and then you say, okay, that's great and very encouraging. Now let's imagine you aren't in the room and instead I have all the people who work for you and I ask them, do you think your boss cares about you as an individual human being? What percent of the hands go up? And interestingly, it all, all seems to be the same thing. About 60% of the people in the room then put their hand up. <laughs> and there's always a bit of a nervous giggle. Yeah. And I say, well, isn't that interesting? Because you do care about your people. You've all said you care about your people. But a bunch of you think, well, gee, they, they probably wouldn't say that. Why is that? Well, it's because care is an action verb. You know, do you know their name? Do you know their parent, their uh, partner's name? Do you, do you know if they have kids? Do you know what they did on the weekend? Do you know what they like about their job? Do you know what they hate about their job? Do you know what they want to do next? Do you know what, why they work at the company? Do you know where they worked beforehand? Do you know where they're going on vacation? You know, because if, if you haven't actually had that conversation and if you haven't taken any action to help show that they matter, then it's just a thought experiment to say that you care. Yeah, yeah makes perfect sense. I, I mentioned to you before we press the record button, uh, I, I have a quasi-academic background from a leadership perspective. And so I was looking at some of the research and looking at the correlations between effectiveness and leadership and looking at the areas you pulled out as being really important for you and indeed the book you've written, they're all sitting at 0.65 to 0.8. Now, what that means is they all are very, very effective, as in do these well, you're almost guaranteed to get good impact from a leadership perspective. So your MBA, not wasting time in your MBA wasn't lost on you, Brian. You still landed at the right outcome or a good outcome. Phew, that's nice to hear. <laughs> I'm really interested in context and I'm really interested in clear the way as two 
they're all very important areas, but these two really hit me. The word context struck me because at the moment, the context around the world is so profound and it's changing so fast around us. And in your book, you, you make it really clear that explaining the changing context is important. How come you, you found that and what did you do about it? Well, I came to the context thing on the basis that people have choices in life. So for the most part, people choose where they work within reason. I mean, some people feel trapped, but most people have alternatives. And so they want to feel that the time that they're spending is spent on something worthwhile, ideally. Uh, so I think the job of a leader is to help people connect what's important to them at a personal level with what they're spending their time on in the organization. So what does the organization stand for and why, why does what you do all day matter to that? And why is that something that you can feel good about? because it's hopefully aligned with personal values. So that's the general notion because it's my assumption is people have choices. And then the second part of it that you allude to is in times of change, it's really important for people to feel some sense of control. A lot of the anxiety that comes in times of change is a feeling of a lack of control. That's my, my theory. And, and when you explain the context for what you're doing and you say, okay, we are still a company that cares about these things. Our context has changed for these reasons. And therefore we're going to make the, we're having to make these decisions. People can then connect with that and rationalize it and feel okay about it versus someone who says, wait a minute, I thought we were a company that did this. And now all of a sudden you're doing that. That makes me feel out of control. That makes me feel very unsettled. So that's why I think context in, in a time of great change or crisis is, is quite important if, if it's important to you to keep people feeling engaged. I'm noticing that the language of our particular premiers in Australia at the moment is very much leaning towards, let me help you understand the changing context, the changing context and the context has changed from me last week or even yesterday. And here's yeah. why we're doing X as a way to try, I suspect, to try and get the media to keep talking about the changing context as opposed to the decision has, is now wrong or the previous yeah, decision. Well, and that's exactly what they should be doing because the reality is no one on the planet has been through something like this at this scale on a global basis before. So, you know, there is no answer you can look up. Yeah. There's no playbook. So the best you can do is, is try and be thoughtful about that. And, and it's difficult particularly through the media who wants to make everything so unbelievably simple and black and white. So I think talking about context is exactly what they should be doing. The other one that really struck me is you call it clear the way and the idea of the leader taking time to understand what is the reality of the environment our people are in or the way they need to do their work or what the barriers they're finding. And then therefore, how does the leader figure out ways of either addressing the barrier, remove the barrier or create a path around the barrier as an example. And in your book, you, you talk about a lovely story where you're doing a town hall and you're asking for questions and people raise up uh, ideas that you would never have come onto your, your radar, but they were really important for them. Yes. Well, I think I'm a bit politically incorrect in saying that I think that all the leadership focus on empowerment and delegation is a bit misguided. Um, because it, it has taught leaders that their job is to swim up to the top of a pyramid and then everything else goes down and gets executed elsewhere. And I think that that has led to a lot of issues because the fact is typically when people have risen to a significant level in an organization, they have a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience that the organization can benefit from. 
And so if they don't actually dive in, plus they have context. So the, I think the story you're alluding to was that um, I thought I was going to get asked all these really interesting questions about my brilliant strategy that I had just shared with them. And all they wanted to know was, could they have a new copy machine? And it's a good example in the sense that the context was their manager was managing to a cost budget and thought that the only thing that mattered was hitting this cost budget. Whereas my context was a bigger one, which is we're, we're trying to deliver great customer experience and an overall cost structure, which meant that if people were spending half their life standing in the queue while the copy machine got fixed, that was actually not a very efficient way to run a business. And so, but because that had been dealt with by someone who didn't have the right context, it was a poor decision. And so I'm encouraging leaders to dive in. Micromanaging management is such an, is such a bad word. Everyone, no one wants to be accused of micromanaging, nor am I suggesting that, that someone should be making every decision. If you don't dive in a bit to see what people at different levels are actually dealing with and what decisions are holding them back, what assumptions they're making, what constraints there are on their ability to execute, then I don't think you're really doing your job. Yeah. The idea of don't bring me problems, only bring me solutions is a, is a complete abdication of the context and the, my ability to help you. Well, that specific thing, that was something that was in the water at Westpac when I got there. I used to hear that a lot and I queried it. And what I found out was that it was something that a very senior executive used to say to his people. And so it became article of faith right. in the company. But but the, the consequence of it was that people interpreted it as don't raise problems unless you know how to fix them. Yep. And some people can't fix things. That's right. They haven't got the ability or the know-how or the experience or tacit knowledge. Or I was, I was sharing with you um, in an early conversation, I worked with a leader across the Asia Pacific region about a year ago who was her first time in a level role of that geographical span. And I noticed she was spending a lot of time in decisions that I felt were quite below the role of authority she was holding, but nonetheless was, was interested. And I just suggested to her, why don't you spend a week or two, you know, using your language, just on understanding so you can clear the way, but at least just understand mm-hmm. first. And it transpired that the, the decision rights authority that lay across the different levels of the organization was designed about 10 years earlier and therefore was right. no longer fit for purpose. So right. people were putting up decisions to her level because 10 years earlier, that's what was designed for. So she spent the next three months in the process with her teams and the teams on the organization figuring out the right levels and therefore clearing the way to to more empowered decision-making or at least more informed decision-making. The impact for herself though was about six months later, she cleared up about 15 hours a week in her diary to spend on more strategic areas of the organization rather than just signing off decisions that could have been done much earlier. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a great example. So I, I really love that idea of, of, of clearing the way. And I agree with you is if we have a mantra of don't bring me problems, bring me solutions, you're actually overlooking whole parts of the business that are in trouble that only you can sort out. Well, I think it's the opposite of that actually is it, it's, you have to be curious and you have to dive in and, and say, so show me what you're dealing with. What, what's getting in the way? What assumptions are you making? And all those sorts of things. And, and then you have to be strategic about where you do that, obviously. But, um, but I think that's a really important part of of a leader's responsibility. Brian, I'm, I need to bring our, our conversation to an end and I've really appreciated all of your sharing and insights. 
the Leadership Stars is a really useful book that comes from real experience. So I certainly um, recommend that. Congrats on the second life of Brian, as as per the, the media you. and all, all the roles that you're, you're taking on uh, in technology, etc. The last two questions I ask everybody, and I'm keen to hear your views on these. What's your favorite song or band? <laughs> Um, I would say REM is my favorite band. And if you pushed me on a song, I'd probably say it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine, (laughs) which um, is a song that always makes me smile and has a lot of aspects that resonate in my life. And lastly, if you could turn back time, what would you tell the 35 year old version of yourself? (laughs) I would say a couple of things. Number one is it'll be okay. Number two is that it's good to aspire to be wise, but the way you get to wisdom is you go through pain. I would say it is okay to exercise judgment. You don't need to be able to rationalize everything you're doing. Part of what you get paid to do is is exercise judgment. And I would say the personal commitment to always doing what you think is right, as opposed to what is expedient or good for you is a good decision. And that will be worth it in the long run. Fantastic. I suspect many people will be taking notes on, on those last four ideas you've given to the younger version of yourself. Brian Hartzer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Pod. It's been really enjoyable and very stimulating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs, or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.